Good, 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 good match show. Welcome to Good Match Show, a show about matches, both good and bad, but mostly good. So we venture through all 131 matches rated five stars or more by Uncle Dave Meltzer of the Wrestling Observer Newsletter. Here we break down, analyze, and discuss all the happenings in said matches, as well as the weekly ongoings in the modern wrestling world, which, as you know, is quite strange right now so without further ado let's get weird i'm your host on yellow de angeles for another solo edition Isai will be back hopefully for friday's gcw rewind that's right we're going to be starting a couple weekly rewinds keeping up with it as much as we can as this quarantine continues on mondays we'll be doing 110 degrees of glory looking at pwg pro wrestling gorilla from 2013 to 2016 in their heyday as well as the blossoming bloody bastards a look back at gcw from 2015 to the modern day so that should be pretty fun and uh, some time fillers while we're all stuck at home Let's get on to this weekly review for some things to check out um, outside of the U.S. If you're interested in ever, you know, branching out, looking at some new things. So there's a lot of wrestling happening right now, believe it or not. We've got the uh, AAA Lucha Fighter Tournament continuing. You definitely need to see the Pentagon Jr. versus El Hijo del Vikingo match. Vikingo throws literally everything he has at this guy, and it's a sight to see. Then in a zero one, we had Cody Vice defeating Kohei Saito for the zero one heavyweight championship. A little bit of a puzzling decision, I suppose. This is the third zero one heavyweight champion this year already. It's only May. We had Yuji Hino. Now we had Kohei Saito, Kohei Saito, and now we have Cody Vice. So a little bit of a hot potatoing that title, but you know. You do what you gotta do. Then at uh, All Japan Pro Wrestling's desire to deliver to the world, we had the all-Asia tag team title match in the main event with Yankee 2 Kenju, which is the team of Asami Kodaka, and Yuko Miyamoto, which I just absolutely love it. These two you know, deathmatch legends are just torn around, whipping legit ass for the all-Asia tag team titles. They defeated Akira Francesco and Kento Miyahara, 24 minutes and 15 seconds to retain their titles. Over in Pro Wrestling Noah, we had a Sugiera Goon versus Kengo or Congo um, special show with uh, headlined with a Congo versus Sugiera Goon elimination match. So Congo with the team of Hao, Keno, Manabu, Soya, Masa, Kitamiya, Neo, and Yoshiki Inomura defeating Sugiera Goon with the team of Hajime Ohara, Kazushi Sakuraba, Nosawa. Rene Dupree, Siki, Yoshioka, and Takashi Sugiura. And without, uh, before I get into this, the match was 46 minutes, 43 seconds. Man, it's, you know, Nosawa's big on Rene Dupree, and I'm not sure if I'm seeing it yet. I'm not going to disparage the guy because good for him for obviously revitalizing his career in the middle of a pandemic of all times. I know that Dupree hasn't just been completely disappeared. This isn't a case of... Uh, Mark Jindrak or even Bart Gunn, you know, like Dark Side of the Ring, where it's like, man, after that, all these guys just fucking disappeared. But these people have had long, long careers in Japan. So the match, first, Inamura gets Yoshioka at 19 minutes, 21 seconds. Ohara then pins Inamura at 20.33. Soya then gets Ohara at 24.33. Sakuraba gets... I can't even read my own notes, so I apologize. Um... Hao gets Sugiera at 33 minutes and 58 seconds. Um, Dupree 
gets Kinemiya, 34 minutes, 5 seconds. Hao gets Nosawa, 36 minutes, 25 seconds. Dupree then pins Hao at 36 minutes and 25 seconds. And then Dupree gets Soya, 38 minutes, 38 seconds. So that's half of, Kong, of Congo that Rene Dupree has eliminated. And then Keno eliminates Rene Dupree, 38 minutes, 44 seconds. And finally gets Sakuraba at 46 minutes, 43 seconds to win the match for his faction baby. If you are starved for any Joshi, by the way, the weekly Ice Ribbon shows have been going on. I haven't had a chance to check them out yet. I'm still looking for time to jump into this Joshi pack that I got. You can say that. I'm also still... Looking for time to watch Impact Rebellion. I feel like I have nothing but time, but it's weird how that works, isn't it? It's just like, man, I don't know. Wild fucking time. So the weekly Ice Ribbon shows have been continuing under their dojo. So if you need some Joshi, definitely check that out, Nico Pro. Um, speaking of dojo shows, DDT finally um, launched their first dojo show, episode one on uh, May the 2nd. Headlined by two main events with Daisuke Sasaki retaining... DDT Universal Championship against Antonio Honda, 13 minutes and 19 seconds. And then Kazusada Higuchi defeating Tetsuya Endo in 24 minutes and 15 seconds for the KOD Openweight title. Um, incredible match. Definitely got your way to see this one. This was really, really fun. So, yeah. And now let's get into the weekly happenings in America. So what's been going on? Well, we've got SmackDown, and SmackDown is still as much of a nothing show as ever. The show opens up with a almost 20-minute or 20-minute with commercials, Daniel Bryan, King Corbin match that ends in a, you guessed it, DQ. So if you have your WWE bingo cards out, that was, again, King Corbin winning by DQ against Daniel Bryan in a 20-minute opening match. So if you got bingo Congrats. Then <laughs> we had Sheamus defeating Leon Ruff, who has literally just been getting spanked, I think, on every single fucking show. I don't remember if Leon Ruff, I'm pretty sure the last time I actually saw this guy live was like Evolve 141, Walter versus JD Drake, Cassius Ono versus Josh Briggs, Austin Theory versus Baba Tunde, you know, the real, just incredible. Legendary matches. I'm pretty sure Leon Ruff is one half of the Evolved Tag Teams. Is the Skulk, right? With like AR Fox or some shit. So, good for Leon Ruff. I I think it's funny, you know, a lot of the wrestlers that do wrestle and evolve for Gabe, a.k.a. Max Barsky. Um, no, that's uh, David Starr, but if you get it, you get it. Um... You know, Gabe always promises visibility that you get to work with these WWE talents. And obviously, this is the stepping stone to get in there. But, man, I mean, <laughs> can't feel great to just be this sore during a pandemic, you know. Because, I mean, Ruff gets decimated here by Sheamus on Friday. Comes back. Did he get squashed again on Monday? No. And then Wednesday, he gets just, just backdrop driven to hell. By Carrion uh, Cross. So, shouts out to Leon Ruff for entertaining us in these dark times. We had Carmelo defeating Mandy Rose in a Money in the Bank qualifying match. Okay. So, that continues. Uh, funny note, Brian Alvarez still pointing out that every single time Carmelo wins a match, it's like, oh my god, I can't believe I did it. My job is to win matches and I can't believe I actually did my job. I understand this to a degree. I mean, 
when you never win, you've got to be shocked, but you should have some sort of confidence in yourself. So this never really looks convincing like this was a fluke. This was a flash in the pan. Probably won't happen again. Then we had the Forgotten Suns defeating the New Day. 12 minutes and 41 seconds with, I believe, Steve Cutler pinning Kofi Kingston or Wesley Blake. I, one of them pinned Kofi Kingston. And it's just like, I, I'm, you know, here on this show, we always talk about the need to create new stars. And it always feels like whenever they do decide to go with a new star, 9 out of 10 times it's someone that I'm not really convinced is a star. Whether it be Corbin or the Forgotten Sons, you know, I want to see more Apollo Crews. I want to see more of those guys. These Forgotten Sons, they do nothing for me. They walk out and they just say they were Marines. I know two out of three were. I'm not really one that's ura uh, ura jingoism, you know. I'm not a big patriotic kind of person. So the whole Marine narrative doesn't do much for me. This is professional wrestling, so there's two separate worlds. Neither demands the other's respect. So it's just kind of a false equivalence in my book, and it's very much just of the Vince McMahon playbook that just because A did B, they are deserving of respect in this world. I don't really buy into that bullshit. So in our main event, <laughs> just shooting on the United States military, baby. Um Money in the Bank qualifying match. Otis defeating Dolph Ziggler in 11 minutes and 15 seconds. You know, you know SmackDown is starved for main events when this is it. Obviously, this is one of the better written programs, but it's just completely fucking nosedived and just gotten really weird and predatorial even more so than before with them firing the head woman that was in charge of the program. Obviously, it's fallen into lesser hands since then. Um, yeah, and that's that's pretty much SmackDown. So next week, we've got Sonya Deville versus Mandy Rose. And I was talking about this on the Genuine Wrestle Boys. That's Genuine Wrestle Boys. Go to bit, uh, bit.ly slash suck your own to check out their stuff. I believe get a free book from Jeff Bezos if you sign up. You know, fuck Jeff Bezos. So that's always fun. And um, But so they were showing this package, video package for Mandy Rose versus Sonya Deville. It was just move after move, like just boom, boom, boom. And all I could think was, this is probably the total amount of offense that both of them have gotten on their main roster careers. It's like five knees from Sonya, a couple slams from Mandy, a couple knees here and there, and that's about it. So it was like they didn't have much to pull from, but at least they made it look impactful. Now onto Monday Night Raw, which opened with the Money in the Bank qualifying last chance gauntlet match since Apollo Crews was out. Opens up with Bobby Lashley versus Titus O'Neil. And at this moment, I go, oh, good for Titus O'Neil. He's still got a job. And that made me happy. This guy gets such good publicity. He seems like such a genuinely great human being. I was very, very happy to realize that he still had a job. And then he was eliminated by Bobby Lashley in 50 seconds. So maybe he is on the chopping block. Who knows? Uh, Bobby Lashley then eliminates Akira Tozawa, who, again, won this Wednesday in the NXT Interim Cruiserweight Championship Tournament. So this is just so beyond frustrating at this point to keep jobbing out this guy every single week on the quote-unquote main roster shows, even though NXT is obviously a main roster show because that's the extreme point they went to make during Survivor Series this year with NXT cleaning house. Yet Akira Tozawa can't get any moves or offense or any sort of win-in 
on a main roster show, yet he's dominating in this cruiserweight tournament, and it just really kfab wise makes everyone in the tournament feel like an absolute fucking geek. So you know, in a company where you've got hundreds of literally like literally hundreds of wrestlers signed, even though. Paul Heyman's big on Akira Tozawa, and Akira Tozawa can sell like an absolute fucking beast. Seriously, every time I see this guy in the ring, I think he's deathly injured, but he never is. You don't need to job him out every week, okay? He can be in other matches. He can do whatever, but this guy doesn't need to be losing every single week while he's winning in an actual tournament on the other show. There's just, there's no... There's no cohesive, there's no cohesiveness between these shows. There's it's, it's almost like Tozawa is playing a character on one show and another on the other, and it's uh, it's frustrating for the people that tune in to every bit weekly and actually pay attention. Babby Lashley then eliminates Shelton Benjamin, and I just realized that in my dream last night that Shelton Benjamin actually won this match because I think that would have been really really fun, but. Obviously, you got to get AJ in there somehow if he's ready, willing, and able. Ready, willing, and gable, baby. Uh, Bobby Lashley then gets disqualified against Humberto Carrillo. And it's like, you know, WWE, I think, is the worst fucking company in the world with disqualifications. Because, again, there's just... There is no... I can't think of this fucking word, and I keep saying cohesive, and I know it's not it. I'm just going to Google this fucking thing. Alright, fuck it. I I can't think of this thing. So let's just call it a groove or a rhythm or a rule. But there's no groove between any of these things, right? So Nia Jax, or who was it? Someone got disqualified because of holding a fucking ladder last week. And this week, Bobby Lashley gets disqualified for being a little bit too rough. But on all the other shows... You know, you've got chairs. Think about how New Japan approaches DQs. There's only been one DQ in AEW so far to date. And it makes the matches a lot better because it's WWE just always uses a DQ as a, a shit way to get themselves out of booking themselves into a corner. But here's the thing. If they didn't book themselves into a corner, they wouldn't have to do these DQ finishes. So WWE is just, they're unfathomable in the in, in the in the ways that they go to screw themselves constantly because it's like wrestling is fake, right? It's staged, it's scripted. So we can do whatever we want to do. So we don't have to put Bobby Lashley in this match or what we can do is we can have Bobby Lashley eliminate Titus O'Neil. We can have Bobby Lashley eliminate Kira Tozawa. We can have Bobby Lashley eliminate Shelton Benjamin. And then you can have Lana come out or you can do something else. You can do a million fucking things, but you don't have to do... Bobby Lashley gets rough in the corner and then gets disqualified because that doesn't make sense. It makes the ref feel like just completely out of line with the other refs. And, you know, I know I'm harping on this situation now, but it's something that I believe deserves to be harped on. So Bobby Lashley getting disqualified, not a fan. Then Humberto Carrillo then eliminates Andrew Garza, then eliminates Austin Theory. And then AJ Styles comes in and eliminates Humberto Carrillo. And... Okay, so Humberto Carrillo gains nothing from this because he doesn't beat Bobby Lashley. He beats the other two guys by the skin of his teeth while getting beat down the entire time. And then loses to AJ Styles. So, you know, thing about the World Cup, you never remember who lost. You always remember who won. Second place is quite possibly the worst because you fade away. And then when it gets brought up, it's like, oh, yeah, that was the guy that lost in the final moment. So... Again, Humberto Carrillo probably goes back to main event now. And AJ Styles goes into the money in the bank. AJ Styles, though, does cut an amazing promo right after this ends. He just goes, 
I ain't no ghost. I ain't no zombie. And it was just hilarious. Perfect, classic AJ Styles cadence and delivery. He talks about throwing someone off the roof. I saw on Reddit someone mentioning the idea of He's either in Reddit or uh, my wrestling group, so shout out to the group chat, Wendy, Kevin, Charlie, Big Walt, Isai, Mike and Mike, and Corp, our leader, Jenna. Thank you, love y'all. Um, so it was the recommendation, the idea that AJ Styles gets thrown off the roof and then he just shows up again Monday and he has like this uh, the phenomenal and the invincible AJ Styles. I think that would be a really fun gimmick. Just cartoon Wiley Coyote death for AJ Styles all the time, as long as this pandemic lasts. Next, we had the redebuting team of Brendan Vink and Shane Thorne defeating Cedric Alexander and Ricochet. This was actually a really, really good match for the amount of time it lasted. It felt like a uh, condensed PWG match. Spot after spot, Alexander and Ricochet are a hell of a team. I mean, they do not miss a beat. And the final moments of this match just saw Thorne nailing Cedric, Ricochet nailing Thorne, then Vink nailing Ricochet. Awesome. It, you know, it felt like right there that the match was just getting started, but with these TV matches, usually they're pretty truncated, so what can you do? Interesting to see what they're going to do with Brendan Vink and Shane Thorne. I love them as a team. I think they've got a great, unique look. I love an Aussie team on the uh, main roster. Let's see if they give them any sort of TMDK gimmick or uh, a name. I'm someone that I believe in branding immediately, right? That once you've got a tag team, it doesn't matter if they're going to be together for one week. It doesn't matter if they're going to be together for five years. Give them a name immediately so we can start seeing them as a team and not just two people teamed up together. This is one of the main problems I have with the faction right now, led by Zelina of Andrade, Angel, and Theory. It's that obviously this is Zelina's crew, but we don't know a fucking name for them. And if we did, first you can merchandise the hell out of that stuff. And then we have something to call them. And that's a lot more fun than just Brandon Vink and Shane Thorne and Cedric Alexander and Ricochet. Like, they can literally call that team said Ricochet. I mean, it, it fucking writes itself, my goodness. And I guess this match was only 4 minutes and 30 seconds, so we could get the 16-minute, 20-second match between the Viking Raiders and Street Profits, in which the Viking Raiders defeated the Street Profits. Awesome match. I mean... This is probably the Street Profits' best main roster match to date. The Viking Raiders looked amazing. I really like that they're starting to get characters outside of themselves. And here's hoping that they take back the titles and that the actual tag team division starts to get interesting. Fingers fucking crossed. Because now we've got, what, four teams on Raw? Let's see here. I, I actually have no clue. Um, WWE Raw tag team division. So... <laughs> there's no I don't even know why I tried this there's absolutely nothing it just says the golden truth he's Slater and Rhino and <laughs> one of those people is still in the company Jesus okay when we had Charlotte Flair defeating Liv Morgan in 10 minutes and 57 seconds I don't know what the fuck they're doing with Charlotte Flair I feel like they think that she is the baby face in all of this and again like we were talking about this on WrestleBoys how uh, Matt was going back and watching um, you know, old pay-per-views between WrestleMania 20 and WrestleMania 21. We're talking about Eugene and how he does have a pure energy to him. And then we talk about you know, Apollo Crews crying and that. In any other company, these, this pure energy, this, this emotion, this um, genuine you know, suffering would be seen as a sort of righteous thing. As like this, wow, this is very human. This is existential, etc., etc. But in WWE, it's always seen as like, ha-ha, fuck this guy for crying. 
haha, fuck this idiot for wanting to be a wrestler. And it's just because it's always under the mean lens of Vince McMahon, who is a mean fucking person. And I just, so whenever they do something like this, it's, it's, it's hard for me to see that they actually see the other side to it because I don't think that they do. I think that they genuinely see Charlotte Flair, this bully that just kind of walks into everything that she's given and that she is the baby face. And I think that's very, very sad. And then in the main event, we had Drew McIntyre defeating Murphy in six minutes and 10 seconds. Uh, gets uh, almost laid out by Rollins, but still stands tall at the end, which is something to note that McIntyre always stands tall, but it doesn't feel shoved down our throats. It feels because he's a badass and he's actually very strong and tough. And I appreciate having that sort of baby face around. Doesn't feel to be of the Cena or Reigns blend in which they just do because they have to. Everything feels legitimate here. Then for the Wednesday Night Wars, we had AEW. Cody defeating Joey Janela in 13 minutes and 21.9 seconds. I think Joey Janela went for a handstand at one point on the outside and it just looked so fucking bad. <laughs> um, and he really, really tried. This match, you know, outside of that spot and then the moonsault spot that Cody did just because it looked so absolutely staged with Janela just, you know, completely walking in a position and just standing there waiting for Cody. I wasn't a fan of that. But other than that, this match was actually pretty good. Um, you know, I love Janela. I fucking, he's one of the great, uh, not one of the greats, but he's just really great to watch. Um, you know, he's still really finding himself on TV. It's, it's always exciting to watch like a top dog on the indies. It's still a top dog on the indies. Try to find themselves on a mainstream television. So be interested to watch. Keep watching the journey of Joey Janela. Cody wins again. I'm really not into Cody right now. I think that he has really went to the well far too many times um, just with his character and with his matches. So it doesn't have me excited for the Cody Lance Archer match. I think that if you want to book that match in an interesting way, if you really want to give Cody some more character, obviously this guy has lost every single big match that he's been in. I mean, what, what has he really done? He beat Darby. He beat the Butcher and the Blade. And he beat Joey Janela just now. Other than that, he lost to MJF. He lost to Jericho. He's probably going to lose to Lance Archer. So why don't you do a John Cena versus Brock Lesnar SummerSlam fucking 2014 style match, right? Have Larcher come out and just decimate the living hell out of Cody for 10 minutes straight and then win. That's how you posit that title is. Man, whoever takes this title off Archer is going to be a made fucking man, right? And if Cody eventually does... That writes it there so Cody can come back. And then maybe Cody finally gets a fire off his ass and starts doing healer things because obviously everything else he's been doing hasn't been working. And I think Cody works better as a heel anyway. It's like Brian Sempervivi said on one of the uh, American Nightmare podcasts recently that he sees the heel inside of the pretty boys of Kento Miyahara and Yoshida from 2AW as well as Cody that these guys, while they are the baby faces of the company and the top boys, that there is a heel living inside of them just waiting to be unleashed. Then we had the return of Nyla Rose defeating Kenzie Page. Um, happy to see Rose is back. You know, it's always nice to have a champion around. And, you know, I liked the little package that they did on the women. Um, it made me realize, you know, while the women's division hasn't been booked amazingly or even well, I would say that we are at least getting characters at this point and here's to hoping that they start getting booked into more programs that are not just title programs um like it looks like we might get a brandy versus brit probably get hakar shida versus nyla rose 
And I think a really fun feud could be uh, Yuka Sakazaki versus Penelope Ford. Super bad versus super good. I think it writes itself. We had John Moxley, the AEW World Heavyweight Champion, defeating Frankie Kazarian in a pretty damn good match in 60 minutes and 30 seconds. Um, I am a fan of these title matches, or not title matches, but just champion matches always going long. Because I always think about the reigns of PWG, right? All those title matches were always 25, 30 minutes. No matter who the challenger was, they always had a shot. And I think it shows that. You know, this roster, first off, is damn good because they can go toe-to-toe with Moxley for 60 minutes. But what it shows is that Moxley's condition, it's not that he can't put this guy down in less than 16 minutes and he's some chump because of it. It shows that Moxley's conditioning is so damn good that he can go 60 minutes with this guy and still get the win easily. So awesome stuff there. Then the Dark Order comes out, starts attacking SCU and Moxley. Eventually Brody Lee comes out and goddamn, I'm so happy. Because still, I'm not a big MJF fan. I'm not sold on his in-ring techniques whatsoever. Um, he can do a hell of a promo, but in-ring, I think that's where his green shows. And he's just not very interesting in the ring. And I was really uh, not anticipating a Chris Jericho rematch with John Moxley. So I'm very, very happy that we're getting John Moxley versus Brody Lee. I think that you know someone like Brian Alvarez always says, this match was good, but outside of the WWE system, it could have been 100 times better. So I think that this is literally the litmus test for if that is true. Because here we have two WWE guys who constantly went at it. Remember Ambrose versus Harper. Ladder match. Royal Rumble, baby. Intercontinental Championship. Amazing fucking match. Um, so... This will be the litmus. So this is going to be the main event of Double or Nothing. So Brody Lee's first pay-per-view main event for AEW, um, his first heavyweight title, championship title shot, I, I, I do not see him taking the title off Moxley this soon whatsoever. I think Moxley will keep holding it maybe till uh, All Out. Who knows? Or actually, yeah. If, I mean, if he wins it uh, Double or Nothing, then he absolutely holds it till All Out. Um, and But I, I think that this can be a hell of a slobber knocker. I'm really hoping for a G1 style match here. Some Kings Row, New Japan shit, baby. Let's get it. Then we had Jake Lance Archer defeating QT Marshall in seven minutes and forty seconds. Jake Roberts is back. I was happy to see him wearing a mask. And then by the end of the match, he was not wearing a mask. Um, I wasn't really a fan of the angle at the end of the match with uh, the snake and Jake sort of laying on top of Brandy. I thought the snake was enough. I didn't think that Jake sort of had to. You know, force himself on top of her. I thought that was a little bit of a too much of a charged image for myself, and I don't really think that stuff has any you know pertinence in wrestling. I don't think it has any place in wrestling. You don't need to do that sort of stuff in wrestling, and it it just it reminds me of you know Ric Flair kissing Becky Lynch or some shit like that, or Dustin Rhodes kissing Lance Archer's wife. It's like that stuff is you know it's very regressive, and uh, we don't need it. And it seems that it's always an older person doing it which is fucking makes sense i suppose then in the main event we had a tag team street fight straight out of ddt of the inner circle defeating kenny omega and broken matt hardy slash damascus in 19 minutes and 21 seconds 29 seconds this is a lot of fun there was a lot of really really cool spots i'm enjoying what they're doing matt hardy where he seems to be playing two completely different characters this was absolutely fucking zany. It was really cool. I like how Omega is able to really be in any spot. If you need him in a 30-minute Iron Man match with Pac, he can do a fucking 30-minute Iron Man match with Pac. If you need him to do a really zany, hilarious, comedic tag team match 
with the best friends of Michael Nakazawa, he can do that. If you need him to do a pretty damn brutal hardcore street fight with some DDT spots, he can do that too with some insane over-the-top character work. Omega really is one of the greats. Aham, uh -huh. here we got some awesome spots with the moonsault off of the uh, construction lift, which was pretty damn high up there. We got Sammy Guevara getting hit by a golf cart. Chris Jericho at the top of his game. We had Proud and Powerful returning, which was really, really nice. Um, the only thing I was really confused by in this whole show was running a video package for MJF and another video package for Sean Spears. And the MJF package, it ends with him saying, so next week... I make my return. And then we go to ringside and MJF is already there. And it just felt really fucking weird. And obviously he's talking about his in-ring return, but he didn't specify that. He just said, next week I'll return. And I'm going to harp on it just because it didn't make any sense then. The whole promo felt very, like, why the fuck did I just have to watch this just if he's going to say the same thing ringside right now. So anyway, we're now getting Jungle Boy versus MJF at double or nothing. Here's to hoping that. You know, Jungle Boy wins. I doubt he will. I think that MJF might be the next feud for the title, probably on television on the uh, three-month interim between pay-per-views. And then uh, we're also getting a casino ladder match for an AEW World Heavyweight title shot. So actually, you know what? I'm totally wrong that MJF would be next in line because whoever wins that is going to be next in line. We've got Brody Lee versus John Moxley. We're still waiting... I'm still very, very eager to see what's going to happen with Adam Page. I imagine that Jericho's match will probably be the Matt Hardy um, final deletion or deletion at his compound. I'm imagining that will be the inner circle's role in that match. And here's to hoping that we get some cool Hardy cameos or other people in that match as well. I think it makes sense for the pay-per-view because especially without the live crowd, they can get away with doing that. And I think that you give that away on the pay-per-view versus just television. Um, now on NXT, great opening match, Johnny Gargano versus Dominic Dijakovic. Last week, Dominic Dijakovic saying, and now you're going to fight someone literally twice your size. And goddamn, did he look it. Gargano looked like a little kid in this match. Candice comes out, causes a distraction for Gargano to defeat Dijakovic. Matches like these remind me how little we actually see Johnny wrestle outside of big, big matches. So it's going to be interesting to see what he's going to do here. Um, then we had a WWE NXT Cruiserweight title tournament group B match with Akira Tozawa defeating Jack Gallagher in 3 minutes and 45 seconds. So uh, obviously these matches are just not getting time now, which sucks like... I was so excited for this tournament. And yeah, these matches are sprints and they're good as a result. But, you know, it just, it makes these guys look not as good. And, and I understand that there's obviously a ceiling for these performers. There's obviously a ceiling for anyone in the Cruiserweight division or 205 Live. But it's like, if you're only going to give them three minutes on NXT television, you've got 205 Live that you've been doing replays of tornado tag team matches of the lucha house party and the sing brothers from fucking february that's the only match you're showing so obviously give these guys 20 minutes each actually have them put on some matches make two or five live worth watching like i mean i don't think i'm some fucking genius but it feels like the solutions are always much easier than these problems that they create for themselves so anyway we got chelsea green defeating Zaya Lee in a minute and 16 seconds due to a distraction by Aaliyah. 
It's looking like Aaliyah might join the Robert Stone brand. I'm all for that. She needs something to do. She needs more character. She fits in with the Robert Stone brand, and Chelsea Green would be a fun faction leader. I also liked how Chelsea Green wore out what looked like a piece of a wedding outfit, like a shawl or something through to Zia So a little bit of a callback to her hot mess character there that I hope she eventually gets back to because it is phenomenal. Then we had the entrance of Karrion Cross with Scarlet, which was Triple H on fucking ketamine, baby. It was awesome. You can tell that these guys are going to push her into the moon. And my very first thought when Karrion Cross debuted here was, this is the man that is taking the title off of Adam Cole. I'll stand by those words. It's rare that you get an entrance so impressive, so intimidating, that says so much that you just feel that this person is special. I would say maybe one of the last times is someone like you know Finn Balor, something like that. So... Really, really just impressive stuff from top to bottom. From the production, from the interactions by Scarlet to just the presence of Cross. This was fucking dystopic. It was doom. It was gloom. It was awesome. Uh, fall and pray, baby. He defeats Leon Ruff again in 54 seconds. Ruff eats two backdrop drivers, Saito suplexes. And then uh, Cross drops him into, I believe, like a coquina clutch or something like that. So gets a submission win. Then we have the WWE NXT Women's title match with Io Shirai defeating Charlotte Flair at Hold Your Fucking Breath by disqualification in 7 minutes and 8 seconds. Charlotte Flair bringing out the kendo stick. Again, is this really the fucking baby face of this division right now? Like, get over yourselves. Rhea Ripley comes out to help Io, and then Ripley and Io start, you know, bantering. So, Io seems like a tweener, not even a baby face. I don't understand why Rhea has to reinsert herself into this. Um, obviously, Rhea wants the title back, but this completely overshadowed Io, and I felt like really just made her feel like a fucking placeholder, which just sucks considering that she's the best women's wrestler in the world, probably. And um, again, the flare streak continues. I am just so sick of these DQ matches because this is literally, there's been one of these on every single show. On Friday's show, it was Corbin and Daniel Bryan. On Monday's show, it was Bobby Lashley and Humberto Carrillo. And here is Io Shirai and Charlotte Flair. So it's almost 45 minutes worth of wrestling that I had to spend my time watching only for it to be ended in a DQ. It's just a complete waste of time. It's like it's like watching a movie for three fucking hours only to find out it was all a dream. Like, cool, I'm really happy I invested all my time in that only to find out none of it existed and none of it had any really real weight or relevance. Then we had a WWE NXT Cruiserweight title tournament group A match with Kushida defeating Jake Atlas in three minutes and three seconds. Again, this was a sprint, but it was really cool to see Jake Atlas in the ring with Kushida. He held his own for the most part. Um, I'm really hoping that... So, the way the finals are set for each group now is that Kushida versus Drake Maverick, whoever wins that will win the, will win the uh, block, assuming that... You know, because Drake will be 2-1. Kushida will be 2-1 as well. But Drake will have the win over Kushida. And then it looks like it will be Tozawa versus Ohio de Fantasma. And whoever wins that match, because Tozawa is 2-0 and Fantasma is 1-1. One one, so whoever wins that will win the block. I see it going to Fantasma because I don't see a debut in Fantasma going 1-2. and two. Um, However, I didn't even think about how much of a dream match Akira Tozawa versus Kushida is. That would be fucking awesome. And I don't think we've ever gotten that because when Tozawa was in Dragon Gate, 
Kushida was in New Japan. Tozawa came here and was on the 205 Live main roster, while Kushida was just on NXT television. So that, I think, would be something very, very special and something that I would absolutely love to watch. But I doubt we will get it. I think it will be a Phantasma Kushida Finals. I do not see Drake Maverick winning. I do not see him getting his job back. I think he is fired, and it's just a classic WWE real shit storyline, and I think that it's shit that they're doing it. If I'm proven wrong, amazing. I love it. Um, but then Kushida, where the fuck does he go? So again, they've booked themselves into a corner with this tournament and this Drake Maverick storyline. I think if anything, Drake Maverick's just trying to get himself as over as he can to give himself some, uh, you know, some, some real weight before he leaves the company. Then we had Cameron Grimes defeating Denzel Dijonet in 22 seconds. Right after a Finn Balor promo that was really, really good. I mean, Balor's just doing amazing promo work right now. So Balor talks about whoever attacked him, you know, whenever you want a push, you attack the top dog because that launches you to the front. Well, guess what? It's not going to be a push. It's going to be a squash. It's not going to be a push. It's going to be a squash. <laughs> and um, after the match, Grimes starts shooting on Finn Balor straight into the camera. He's got his eyes zeroed into the camera as he shoots on Balor. Balor starts to walk out right behind him. It's a really, really great shot. They didn't make Trevor, or not Trevor Lee, Cameron Grimes look a little bit cowardice, cowardly here, which I wasn't a fan of. I wish that Cameron Grimes would have just kept talking when Balor comes out. He turns around and sees him. He goes, yeah, that would kick your ass. I'm all for a foot stomp versus foot stomp feud. I don't see Cameron Grimes winning, but I do hopefully see them having a pretty damn good long match. Hopefully that's what we get from this. And then... Adam Cole defeats the Velveteen Dream in 7 minutes and 42 seconds, which I think is possibly Adam Cole's worst title defense thus far in his reign. This was a bad, bad match. Velveteen Dream has just not been there since he's come back. It was overbooked to shit in a not good way. Um, It just felt like they had absolutely no plan here whatsoever, so they just threw a bunch of things into it. Velveteen Dream attacks United. Uh, you guys must see United Era, Undisputed Era on the outside, but also hits Dexter Loomis, who then looks confused. So I don't know if this is going to lead to a Loomis Dream feud or if it's going to lead to a three-on-three with Loomis Dream and someone else versus the Undisputed Era. Whatever. I am just really hoping this Dream feud ends because, cut from the Roderick Strong Velveteen Dream stuff to then the Adam Cole Velveteen Dream stuff, this has just been drawn out and just beat to death and there is no heat to it there's no fucking interest just let it go put velveteen dream with loomis just get rid of it um because i think it's doing more damage to these guys and it is good at this point i want to see cole have an actual good match again um and i don't think dream's capable of really doing that on that big of a level right now so whoever cole fights next maybe it's cross who the fuck knows but i hope it's just someone else now for our main event of the evening our good match on the Good Match Show. Tonight, we have Jumbo Saruda, Genichiro Tenryu versus Riki Choshu, Yoshiaka Yatsu from January 28th, 1986, All Japan, New Year's Wars, Super Battle Day 25 show. So, Jumbo Saruda, eight five-star matches. Genichiro Tenryu, four five-star matches. 
Yoshiaki Yatsu, two five-star matches. And our focus of the evening, Ricky Chosu, one five-star match. So Chosu was born the youngest of four children in Tokiyama, Yamaguchi Prefecture, to a Korean father and a Japanese mother. Chosu has gone on record to say that he faced discrimination from teachers in elementary school due to his Korean heritage. He took part in baseball and judo as a teenager. And after training in the judo department at Giyang Junior High School, he moved to the wrestling department. Yamaguchi Prefectures, Sa Sakuraku. Uh, God damn it, this one's hard. My my apologies for the pronunciation. Sakura Kayoka High School was a special student. He eventually came in second place in the 73, 73 kilogram class of the Nagasaki National Freestyle Wrestling Tournament, which attracted attention from university wrestling officials, and he later enrolled at Central University School of Commerce on a wrestling scholarship. Um. Chosu then joined the amateur wrestling team at Senshi University shortly after enrolling and was teammates with Mitsushi Hirasawa, the father of future New Japan pro wrestler Mitsuhide Hirasawa. Nineteen seventy-one, he won the All Japan Student Wrestling Championship with a ninety-kilogram class. Thanks to his victory in the tournament, Chosu was selected to represent Japan in the nineteen seventy-two Olympics, Summer Olympics in Munich, Germany. Very notorious Olympics there with the shooting. Um, officials, however, refused to let him compete in Japan for Japan on account of him being part Korean. So he was selected, but then never, um, but then was not allowed to show up for Japan. Nevertheless, South Korea then instead invited him to join their freestyle team, and he represented South Korea as a wrestler. Ricky Chosu ended up the tournament with a record of one win and two losses, and was was disqualified due to the penalty point system. When he returned to Japan, Chosu became captain of the Senshu Wrestling Team in his fourth year at university, and won the freestyle and Greco-Roman hundred kilogram class tournaments at the All Japan Championship in 1973. He then debuted for New Japan Pro Wrestling in August 1974 against El Greco. In the mid-1970s, Choshu was sent to North America to gain experience. Wrestling under his real name, Mitsuo Yoshida, sometimes referred to as Mitsu, he appeared in George Cannon's Superstars of Wrestling promotion as a heel, managed by superstar Supermouth Dave Drassen. Choshu had a brief feud with the top fan favorite of Cannon's promotion, Louis Martin Luis Martinez. After returning to Japan in April 1977, he adopted his famously known Ricky Choshu ring name. Choshu was the first traitor heel in a Japanese promotion. In 1983, upset at not being selected for the inaugural tournament for the IWGP Heavyweight Championship, that is the International Wrestling Grand Prix Heavyweight Championship, he turned on Tatsumi Fujinami during a match and formed his own stable, Ishin Gundan, a.k.a. Revolutionary Army, which was the core for the later Japan Pro Wrestling JPW promotion that invaded all Japan Pro Wrestling. So upon returning to New Japan Pro Wrestling in 1987, Choshu was part of the Takeshi Puroresu Gundan. After New Japan split ties with Takeshi Kitano over the December 27th Sumo Hall riot, Choshu slowly climbed back up into the main event picture. In June 1988, he won his first IWGP Tag Team Championship with Masai Saito, who with whom he had partnered with during a brief stint in the American Wrestling Association at the AWA Vrunganizo promotion. At the same time, he feuded with Tatsumi Fujinami over the IWGP Heavyweight Championship. On May 27th, the match ended in a no contest in which the title was held up. Fujinami won the rematch on June 24th. July 1989, Choshu won his first IWGP Heavyweight Championship against Salman Hash uh, Hashimikov of the Soviet Union. The same month, he would also win his second IWGP Tag Team title with young up-and-comer uh, Takayuki Iz uh, Izuka. So you might know him as the old crazy bastard that ran around with the Iron Claw, who just recently retired, actually. So that's well, almost 30-year career there. Actually, it was a 30-year career. Impressive. 
Two more IWGP heavyweight title reigns would follow between August 19, 1990 and January 4th, 1992. In August 1996, he won the G1 Climax, winning every single match in the tournament. In 97, he won the third IWGP tag team title with Kensuke Sasaki. In January 1998, he retired from the ring for his retirement match. He wrestled five matches in one night, winning four of the five matches, defeating Tatsuhito Ta- Takaiwa, Yutaka Yoshi, Jushin Thunder Liger, and Kazuyuki Fujita, who just fought Koshi Izaki in a five-star match, only to fall to his former tag team partner with whom he held, held the championship with, Takashi is. Um, Takashi Izuka. He would focus on booking matches for New Japan Pro Wrestling after that. Retirement, however, did not last long. Is it Sushi Onita, the king of not fucking retiring from FMW and various other promotions? If you don't know it's Sushi Onita, we probably won't get into him here because he doesn't have any five-star matches. But eventually, once we run out of things to review and talk about, we'll definitely do it. But it's Sushi Onita. Check him out. He has one of the coolest entrances, entrances in wrestling. And the man has supposedly had sex with 30,000 people. Insane. So Sushi Onita challenged Choshu to a barbed wire death match in 2000. Choshu accepted and wrestled Odina in a deadly squash where Choshu ended up winning. He then balanced wrestling and booking for New Japan Pro Wrestling until his departure in 2002, stemming from the departures of Kenji Muto and Satoshi Kojima, among others, to all Japan Pro Wrestling, which caused his position of head booker taken away. After leaving New Japan Pro Wrestling, he formed Fighting World of Japan Pro Wrestling in 2003, which would later be changed to Ricky Pro. After the failures of some of their big shows, he ran Ricky Pro until 2005 when he returned to New Japan Pro Wrestling as a site foreman, booker, and wrestler. In 2007, Choshu joined the Legends stable with Masahiro Chonu, Jushin Thunder Liger, and Akira. Choshu also promotes an occasional series of events called Lock Up, which feature talent from New Japan and other promotions. New Japan supported this financially until 2008 before withdrawing. 2012, Choshu was booked for in a series of matches for Legend, the Pro Wrestling, and Tradition. On June 26, 2019, Choshu teamed with Tomohiro Ishii and Shiro Koshinaka in a six-man tag against Tatsumi Fujinami, Keiji Muto, and Togi Makabe. Fujinami's team won when Makabe pinned Choshu in the post-match. Choshu officially announced his retirement from pro wrestling. So that is the entire career of Ricky Choshu right there. Now for the match. We get entrances for both teams and announcements. Then a quick old-school 1980s Japanese beverage commercial. Pretty random, but good. Then another commercial for some fashion brand, Sakura, I believe, as well as a Star Jester or Star Blaster commercial, some sort of old pocket handheld video game. And then I realized, why am I reviewing commercials? And I realized, why the fuck am I watching commercials? And then I realized that the rip I got of this match was an old, legit television rip, commercials and all, and I guess that was pretty cool. Back to the match. All four men in the ring slapping their chest, getting fucking ready. Again, all these matches, you can pretty much just feel the heat brimming off these guys right before it starts. Ricky Choshu and Jumbo Saruta start the match. We've got Saruta in the elbow pad, um, Tenryu in the you know the yellow, yellow stripes, Choshu with the long hair and the taped up abdomen, and then um, Yatsu in the tights. So, they circle each other, exchange a couple of kicks. They continue to circle. A definite big match feel. The crowd is already going insane as they would be 30 minutes into a match. The two men grapple and Choshu wins. Goes into a side headlock, which turns back into grappling. And Choshu is now back against the ropes. The ref breaks it up. The two men lock up again. Saruta gets a side headlock now as Ricky Choshu tries to fight out. Saruta jumps, uh, drops a big elbow and the move breaks. Ricky Choshu the nails, nails a single leg takedown, stomps on the chest 
of Jumbo Saruta, who is visibly upset by this. And um, I would say that there's a lot of times where the men are less concerned with winning and more concerned about how they look and how they're beating the hell of the other guy. So these signs of disrespect visibly just shake the other man like, I'm not going to let myself fucking look like this. So Saruta then goes for a full body slam, but Ricky Choshu goes back into his corner as Yatsu then tags in. Yatsu gets a full Nelson, spins Saruta around, then goes for a snapmare, but is stalled by uh, Saruta. Locking up again, Yatsu pushes Saruta in the corner and hits a nasty slap to the face. Yatsu then hits a few more slaps and Saruta appears unfazed and um, merely fixes his elbow pad. They lock up again and Saruta then gives Yatsu a hell of a receipt. Just a stiff slap. Boom. Just a right to the fucking face. Choshu now tags back in and the two viciously lock up. This is already getting even more heated. Slap after chop after knee. Choshu and Saruta fight, fight, fight. Choshu's right abdomen is already heavily taped, just to note that again. And Junichiro Tenryu finally tags in and begins to stalk Choshu. Tenryu is probably the most fearsome bastard in this match, and just a mean, mean fucking bastard. It's also interesting to see Tenryu and Saruta play the heels here, but that is their role. Something of note. Um... Tenryu gives a blind shot. So, yeah, he's stalking uh, Choshu. The two guys are circling each other in the ring. And Tenryu, as he's doing that, just blind shots Yatsu outside. As Choshu then begins to just beat the hell out of Tenryu in the corner. So, it's like Tenryu would rather slap the shit out of Yatsu in the corner and open himself up to getting beat up by Choshu than just trying to fight Choshu. There's this sort of bloodlust that all these men share. It's really fascinating to watch. Uh, Chosu then lifts up Tenryu for a backdrop, and uh, Yatsu climbs to the top rope and elbow drops him down to the mat. Awesome tag team maneuver and pretty wild to see in the first three or four minutes of the fight. And this is a legit fight with tons of heat, and that is very, very evident. Yatsu then whips Tenryu, drops some knees and elbows. Snap Marin drops some more elbows. Pin attempt, one count. Um, this was the pin, first pin attempt of the match, one count. Choshu climbs to the top, and, two, um, and the two now hit a double-tim-assisted pile driver. Awesome. Pretty much an indie taker here. Tenryu is reeling, but gets in a solid chop on Choshu, and then a single-leg takedown. Tenryu then begins to work over Ricky Choshu's left leg, wrenching the ankle and calf over his own knees, just pulling the muscle off the bone. Another set of commercials. A car wax one this time. It ends with the lady stripping and teleporting to a yacht. Now a kid is breakdancing on top of the car, and the girl strips again. Nissan V6 Maxima. Okay, why am I really fucking reviewing his commercials? And now I skip them. Uh, back to the match. Ricky Choshu is on the floor as Tenryu goes for a figure four leg lock. However, Ricky Choshu holds the left leg of um, uh, holds the left leg of Tenryu up to prevent the move from fully locking. Choshu then tags in Yatsu from the floor, and Yatsu drops a huge elbow drop on Tenryu, who's still locked into the move on the floor. Another elbow drop now. Saruta runs in and starts attacking Choshu. So rather than... So in this image, right in this moment, Yatsu is just beating the hell out of Tenryu. And so Saruta runs in and starts to beat the hell out of Choshu. He doesn't try to protect his partner, he's just obsessed with beating the hell out of the other one. He says, you know, if you're going to beat the fuck out of my guy, I'll beat the hell out of yours. And what this actually reminds me of, and we'll get into it at the end. I'll, actually, I'll save it for the end. So, you know, fuck it. This reminds me of the Young Bucks versus the Lucha Brothers from All Out. That insanely amazing ladder match in which the match wasn't so much about winning as it was 
to like if you're gonna kill my brother i'm gonna kill your fucking brother and that's what a lot of this is it's it's less about getting the pin and it's more about pure destruction so yatsu now on the outside of the ring or whoops just jumped ahead a little bit so Jumbasudo runs in and starts attacking Ricky Choshu, quickly breaking down the match. Yatsu chaps Tenryu into the corner and whips him across the ring as Tenryu greets him with a big old lariat. Saruta now runs in the ring, whips Yatsu and hits a big knee to the gut, rinses and repeats. Yatsu now on the outside of the ring begins to recollect himself and adjust his tights. He hops back on the ring on the apron and enters the ring and the two lock up. Yatsu reverses an Irish whip and hits a big time drop kick on Jumbo Saruta, which drives Saruta into the corner. We then get a double vertical suplex by Ricky Choshu and Yatsu. Saruta and Choshu now exchange vicious chops one after the other, and Jumbo Saruta once again hits his flying knee. Saruta now in firm control of Choshu, he begins to attack the abdomen, but then misses a knife edge chop as the two then collide into a double lariat as both men go down. Saruta stomps on a down Ricky Choshu as he is able to get up first and then tags in Tenryu, and the men hit a double forearm to the chest of Choshu. Yatsu complains to the ref as Tenryu continues his systematic attack on Ricky Choshu. Tenryu stomps repeatedly on the injured abdomen of Choshu as he rises in, rise in pain on the ground as the attacks continue. Tenryu grabs the arm of Choshu and fully reveals the abdomen only to kick it repeatedly. Uh, Tenryu now drops elbow after elbow after elbow into the abdomen and continues with stomp after stomp after stomp. He eventually tags in Saruta who picks up right where Tenryu left off. Like it's just, it's almost comedic how much shit these guys are beating out of each other. The crowd is eating this shit up as the ref checks on Choshu who fights back with a couple of shots to the stomach of Saruta who then quickly halts this comeback. Tenryu tags back in and hits a huge brain buster. Um, another pin attempt, one count second attempt here. Um, Saruta tags back in and goes for another brain buster but Chosu prevents it this time. However, Chosu is then given knees to his gut as a receipt for preventing the brain buster. Yatsu comes back and begins attacking Saruta out of frustration. So again, it's just like, none of it really makes sense, these attacks. They're just, it's like men who are so blinded by rage just following that. And that's what's really good is that the psychology of this match is desperation, it's determination, and it's just a lot of just ass beating. I loved it. Um, Tenryu walks over to the corner and just slaps Yatsu straight on, like while he's doing this. I mean, it's just a mean bastard sort of thing. Saruta gets an abdominal stretch. But Yatsu climbs to the top rope and hits a double axe handle on him while he's doing it. Yatsu then tags in and begins running fucking wild. He whips Saruta, gets a big drop kick. Tenryu attacks. Oh, so Yatsu tags in and begins running wild. He whips Saruta, hits a big drop kick on him. Meanwhile, Saruta's attacking Chosu on the outside. Yatsu hits a huge backdrop driver and kicks Saruta repeatedly. Meanwhile, Tenryu's whipping Chosu into the barriers repeatedly and hitting him with a chair. Yatsu hits a knee breaker and then goes for a leg submission on Saruta, but is stopped by Tenryu, who hits his own backdrop driver on him. Ten, uh, Saruta now um, now up, whips Yatsu, and then a huge, huge Stan Hansen-type lariat. He throws his hand up top in the crowd because he knows that was fucking sick. And then a second lariat by Saruta. We see Chosu on the outside just fucked up on the floor, looking in, just unable to do anything for his partner, surrounded by the All Japan young boys. Saruta now goes for a Boston Crab on Yatsu and locks it in. Chosu screams at Yatsu, perhaps encouragement, I can't tell ya. Saruta then tags in Gentenryu, who whips Yatsu and hits a knee to the gut. These guys fucking love that move, man. These guys just want to make sure that Chosu and Yatsu can never eat food again. A chop to Yatsu and then another knife edge chop, clubbing forearms to the back of the head and then knife edges that lacerate the chest of Yatsu. 
Tenryu tags into Saruta, who attacks Yatsu in the chest with a double team maneuver. Saruta whips Yatsu, who counters the move, who counters the attack with a kick to the face. Chosu finally tags back in. Hot baby, hot. We are getting hot here. An Irish whip, big drop kick. Saruta hits Chosu in the abs, but Chosu counters and locks a sharpshooter. And this was a perfect baby face spot. You're going to hit him in the place he's hurt the most, but he reverses it somehow and locks one of the most signature spots in the history of wrestling. The crowd is just fucking going ape shit. Chosu has it just cranked and dialed in all the ways. His ass barely hovers above Saruta's own ass. Saruta screams in agony and finally busts out. It's a little bit weird how these uh, moves ended, but I guess it made sense. Like You can only squat above a guy so long like that without losing your balance or whatever. So Chosu tags in Yatsu begins attacking Saruta with chops to the chest. The men then begin exchanging strike after strike after strike. Saruta slams uh, Yatsu's head into the turnbuckle. Tenryu tags in and hits a slingshot suplex on Yatsu. Last week I was talking about this. So when you hold up a guy for a suplex rather than swinging him back to the mat, you're going to drop him forward. He's going to bounce off the ropes and then you hit him on the back. That is a slingshot suplex. I should have known that. But Tenryu hits that on Yatsu. Yatsu then reverses an Irish whip on Saruta and hits a sling blade. Awesome. Third pin attempt, two count. Yatsu hits a big running big uh, bulldog. He almost goes sideways doing this. He jumps so far. The fight moves to the outside of the ring once again as Ricky Choshu slams Saruta into the ring post and Tenryu then meets him there. Choshu then takes on both men as Yatsu parades around the ring watching his partner. Now Tenryu is in control of RC and whips him into the barrier again and hits him with a chair. Yatsu suplexes uh, Saruta back into the ring and begins stomping on him. We catch a brief, nasty, stiff stomp to J. Uh, I almost keep saying JT because that's how these are my notes to Saruta's forehead. Like it's just a quick close up of Saruta's forehead, and then out of nowhere, just this boom! Just foot comes out of nowhere. It's awesome. Yatsu grounds him against a flurry of close fist punches to the face. Choshu back on the apron, but invisible pain. Um, once again, Yatsu whips Saruta the outside and the two double-team Saru, uh, double Saruta into the ring post. All four men are now fighting on the outside. Tenryu and Choshu, Saruta and Yatsu. Tenryu puts Choshu on the ring announcer table and begins to torture him. Yatsu is a massive pile driver for a fourth pin attempt, two count, and then a backdrop driver, fifth pin attempt, two count. Great little moment here, actually, with Jenichiro Tenryu and Riki Choshu almost zipping into the ring, but waiting. There's just so much energy and emotion and physicality invested. This feels like desperation and determination just spun into this beautiful pageantry of violence. So Choshu is not watching the pin, right? He's watching Tenryu, and Tenryu is watching the pin. So our gaze is on the pin, but then our gaze meets Choshu's, which then meets Tenryu's, which then goes back to the pin. And that is just like almost a perfect thing in film terms too. You want to be following everything and you want it to all connect in that way. Ten, um, at this point, we reveal that Saruta has been busted open. Yatsu whips and then hits a backflip. Yatsu now goes for a Texas Cloverleaf. Choshu guards his partner and steps in any single time that Tenryu does. Yatsu drags Ten, uh, Saruta back into the middle of the ring in the cloverleaf. He, um, Saruta attempts to fight out. Yatsu eventually falls out of the move. Yatsu hits a massive backbreaker, then reapplies the cloverleaf. So just, again, systematically breaking these men down. This time, Tenryu quickly launches in, hits the ropes hellishly fucking quick, and lariats the living life out of Yatsu. Choshu jumps in the air, lands stomp after stomp on Saruta. It's just an awesome visual. Saruta now attacks a down Yatsu and slams Yatsu into the turn buckle. Tenry, um, Tenryu finally tags back in. Could this be the end? Tenryu uh, body slams Yatsu. Six pin attempt, two count. 
Tenryu then hits a huge enziguri on Yatsu, who drops down, and Chochu breaks up the pin before it can begin. Tenryu hits a leglock backdrop driver, and once again, Chochu quickly breaks up the pin. Tenryu, and the reason I'm not counting these as pin attempts is because the ref never even gets to go to it. Saruta launches Choshu outside, but Choshu catches him in the ropes and tangles in him and begins to torture him in the ropes. Tenryu then hits another big enziguri. Yatsu then hits a massive German suplex. He holds it, bridges it for the pin. Seventh pin attempt, two count. The crowd is going fucking crazy. I'm going crazy too. Yatsu hits a shoulder block, but then Tenryu goes for a body slam, which is reversed into a small package, and Saruta quickly breaks it up. Yatsu jumps on a Tenryu and downs him again against the ropes, almost like a Luthez press. Tenryu once again hits that nasty enziguri. Zaguri leg kick to the head though. Eighth pin attempt, two count. Both partners run in to break it up. Tenryu then finally hits a power bomb for the three count before Ricky Choshu can get in there, and that's the match, folks. Woof. So end thoughts incredibly well wrestled, albeit somewhat repetitive at times, but that's how these old matches go. And I feel like the more I watch, the more I'm getting a rhythm for them, the more I'm getting an appreciation for them because, you know. We don't ever have tag matches to this degree anymore. It's very, very rare, right? Think of something like Kenny Omega and Adam Page versus the Bucks. Think of something like the Bucks versus um, the Lucha Brothers. Think of DIY versus the Revival. But back then, and those are all established tag teams, right? We never get these matches where it's just four top fucking guys just beating the hell out of each other, except for still like in all Japan because they believe in that stuff. And I wish we still got more of it. However, you know, I was thoroughly entertained even with the repetition. All four men felt like absolute stars. This was my first time seeing Yatsu and a lot of these guys wrestle, actually. I think this was my first time seeing everyone but Jinichiro Tenryu wrestle. So that was awesome. And I, I'm really having so much fun going back and watching all of these matches and seeing all these stars who I've heard so much about actually just putting in the damn work. Above all, this was an ass-beating above a match, so maybe we should call this good ass-beating time instead of good match show. There are times where the partners were, again, more invested in hating the other than breaking up a pin, which I just thought was so good. Blind rage and male stubbornness, that is what Puro Resu is all about. So, overall, I would probably give this one a four and a half stars. thought it was great, but there was just certain things, again, through a modern lens. Like last week's match through Modern Lens just blew me the fuck away. There's a lot of stuff in this match that we still see. However, it was still done to a perfect degree, so that was awesome. So yeah, four and a half stars from me. Um, future news, I guess, as we wrap up the show. Fridays will now be for the Blossoming Bloody Bastards, a rewind of GCW shows, starting with the 2015 Nick Gage Invitational. So I'll have a show review. Hopefully you get Isai in here for that. And then on Mondays, so long as my, uh, I actually, so I'm bipolar type one, if you didn't know. And so long as that doesn't just murder me for for a day, I'm going to keep up with this as best of I, as, as I can. So we're going to be starting with All-Star Weekend 10 from 2013, um, PWG. So it's going to be a lot, a lot of fun doing these shows. Um, you know, make sure to follow us on Instagram, follow us on Twitter, at Good Match Show. Um, subscribe to us on Spotify, subscribe to us on whatever service you're listening to, Apple Podcasts, whatever, leave a review, shout us out on Twitter, tell your friends about us. You can follow me on Instagram at ohineedtochill, and you can follow Isai uh, uh, at DuckShirt. Um, so check us out on there, You know, DM us, whatever the fuck you want to do. If you want to see anything on the show, let us know. I'm always open to new things. I want to try to make this as awesome as it is for everyone. So on that note, suck your own. Thanks for listening. That's the good match show, baby.